Please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 14, if you have your Bible with you this morning. Today we are continuing continuing our series through the book of Judges, and we are continuing to look at the life of Samson, the last judge, the ultimate judge, the epitome of judges in this book. To give you a little bit of the context Last week we saw how Israel again fell into sin. and They fell under the judgment of God. But God sent the angel of the Lord to announce to a barren woman that she would give birth to a special child. If you recall, the angel of the Lord instructed that Samson was to be separated and devoted to the Lord. He was to be raised under the Nazareth vow, which meant... He was not to touch dead animals. He was not to uh, drink wine or even eat grapes or raisins. And of course, the Lord commanded that his hair should never be cut. And this is the build-up then for the story, the, rest, uh, the, the second scene or the first scene of Samson's life that now begins here in chapter 14. So chapter 14 is our passage. And actually for the sake of context, we're going to begin... Uh, reading in chapter 13, verse 24. We're going to read all the way down through the end of chapter 14. Judges 13, 24, through the end of 14. Brethren, this is the Lord directly speaking to His people. Let us give devotion to it. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him, and Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtalal. Samson then went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards at Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. 
And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you have not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Amen. This is God's word. Let's bow and ask God's blessing upon the preaching. Pray with me again. Father, we do ask that you would attend to your word with grace, with wisdom, and understanding towards us. We pray that you would glorify your name in our midst, that you would reveal to us who you are and what you've done to save sinners. We lay this before you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. No doubt that expectations here with Samson are at an all-time high. Chapter 13, if you'll remember from last week, recounts an amazing story. We read there of a visit by the Lord Himself, uh, the miraculous gift to a ch- of a child to a barren woman. We read the announcement that the angel said this would be a child in Nazareth, separated and devoted to the Lord. It's a wonderful story in chapter 13. Finally, it seems as though we're getting a judge that's worth getting excited about. Finally, there is going to be a pure one, so it seems. One who's devoted to the Lord. And as chapter 14 begins, the question that ought to be running through our minds is, Will this be the one? Will this be the one that God will use to fully and finally deliver His people? Is this the long-awaited seed of the woman that God has promised from the very beginning? It sure seems that way if we read chapter 13 and then stop, (laughs) right? Some of you are smiling because... We just read chapter 14. We've seen now the first scene of Samson's life. All of the massive expectations, all of the high hopes, now come crashing to the ground in but two simple verses. Samson travels into enemy territory. He desires an unlawful bride, the law forbid, taking women from um, the Canaanites around them. And then he storms back and demands that he gets what is right in his own eyes. And everything just goes downhill from there. Literally, in verse 2, the first words out of Samson's mouth 
right? This chosen one. The very first thing that we hear from him, it's fronted in the Hebrew for emphasis. Literally, it reads, Woman, I saw, get her for me. It doesn't quite endear us, uh, him to us, does it? I mean, before we even read the rest of the story, we're, we're kind of taken aback by this, right? After all the expectations of chapter 13, this is more than a bit discouraging, to say the least. Of course, our natural response at this point is to shake our heads and say, there goes Israel again. There goes yet another Example of depravity in this book. There goes yet another astoundingly inadequate judge. And you know, I I get it. That's my initial reaction as well. But today, I want to argue, I want to put before you, that if you're reading the story this way, and that's what you're focused on, you're reading it all the wrong way. It's amazing how even the way we read Scripture reveals a lot about ourselves. According to the New Testament, in Hebrews 11.32, Samson is an example of a man who lived by faith. He is a witness to us of what it means to live by faith. And of course, taken in the larger context of the book, as I've labored to show you week after week, kind of the main emphasis of the book is that God delights in using sinful and warped people to accomplish His purposes. I say this to you because over the next few weeks, I mean, there's definitely some cringe-worthy stuff that we're going to see here because Samson is a deeply flawed and sinful man. But today I just want to ask you this. Does the way in which we read this story reveal that we think we are wiser than God? Are we wiser than God? As if we could pick a better leader for God's people at this time? As if we demand a leader who is, quote, right in our own eyes? Are we reading this story like Pharisees? so focused on outward behavior and morality that we miss what it means to live by faith. To live by faith does not mean uh, sinlessness. To live by faith does not mean that such a person must always be a shining moral example to us. That's how the Pharisees read Scripture. You see, focusing too much on Samson and upon his horrible sin misses the main point and it misses the beauty of the gospel a god who delights to save wretched and wicked sinners but most specifically here i want to ask you are we reading this story as if we have the right to to peer into divine mystery what do i mean by that I've titled today's sermon, The Divine Paradox. I argued last week that Samson is a riddler. He's always got a riddle on his lips, right? But also, Samson's life itself is a riddle. He's a living, walking paradox, an enigma, a mystery. He's physically strong, but morally weak. 
He dominates men, but is himself dominated by women. He's devoted to the Lord in name as a Nazareth, but his life revolves around his dalliances with foreign women. Samson and Samson's life is itself a riddle, a paradox. It's hard to understand. It's seemingly contradictory. But that's just it. That's that's the point. Because the Lord is the one who raised him up. And that gives way to the bigger riddle, the bigger paradox of all. What in the world is God doing? What in the world is God doing with this man? What is he doing with this buffoon, for lack of a better term, right? God is the one who gave life to the barren womb. God is the one who raised him up to deliver Israel. And you know what we see today? God is the one who empowers him with his spirit, which leads Samson to do the things that he does. That's the focus ought to be not so much on Samson and how he lives, but on God and how God is using the sinfulness of man to accomplish his purposes. As we saw last week, Samson's father says, what is your name to the angel of the Lord? And he says, what is my name? Seeing it is too wonderful. It is too incomprehensible. It's more than you can take in. It's more than you can understand. And we too, must be careful not to demand that we have the right to peer into divine mystery as if we can understand ultimately the Lord and His purposes. So that's what's really going on here. The wonderful, imaginable, sovereign Lord raising up Samson to further His purposes and deliver His people. And that's ultimately what we see today. Four points to walk through this passage. In the original language, the verb to tell occurs 14 times in this passage. 14 times, that's a lot. Telling or revealing secrets, telling or revealing what was previously unknown is the dominant theme here. The characters have things they don't know. Israel has things they don't know. We have things we don't know. And so I've organized our four points around the common theme of secret. The secret of sin the secret of Samson, the secret of Samson's bride, and the secret of Yahweh. Sin, Samson, Samson's bride, and Yahweh. First, we see the secret of sin. Verses 1-9 through in our passage here. And really, this actually begins back in chapter 13, verse 25. There we read that after Samson was born, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. This raises a question. This raises a question which we don't know. What is the Spirit of the Lord stirring him to do? What will the Spirit lead him to do? And that immediately is what we get in verse 1. Samson then goes down to Timnah. Timnah was, of course, a Philistine city in north Judah. There, Samson saw a Philistine woman that he liked. And again, I mentioned before, this is the introduction that we get to Samson. Literally his first words, woman, I saw her, get her for me. That kind of just tells us everything we need to know about his life. His very first words. 
Well, naturally, of course, when he says this, his parents are more than a little bit alarmed. Samson was under a Nazareth vow. He was to be set apart and devoted to the Lord. The chosen one was not to go to bed with the enemy. Not only is it foolish politically, but it's disobedient to the law and the commandments of God. No wonder then his parents try to talk him out of it, and they bring up the fact, very pointedly, that she comes from the uncircumcised Philistines. You see, this is the key, because circumcision was the epitome of separation. It was the physical marking that separated, objectively, the people of Israel from everybody else in the world. That's what it means to be separated and devoted. Samson is saying, excuse me, Samson's father is saying, are you kidding me? (laughs) You're going to the very opposite end of what it means to be separated unto the Lord. With his words here, it reveals that Samson's first act in this book is an utter denial of everything his parents were led to believe that he would be and do. So right away, there's something about this chosen one that we learn. He's distancing himself from his parents and how he was raised. He's distancing himself from the law of God and what God said he was ought to be in the announcement of his birth. You can imagine what conversations were like around that dinner table, right? (laughs) You want to marry who? A sworn enemy of Israel? A bride that contradicts everything that the Lord Himself visited and told us who you would be. And you're doing what? Talk about their entire world crashing down. No doubt that many Christian parents down through the years have faced similar type anguish. Right? Someone comes home and a child turns against everything in which they were raised because of their infatuation with the opposite sex. That's why even in the New Testament, the Lord commands believers to marry in the Lord. A child uh, marrying um, outside of the Lord, as it were, or in this case outside of the covenant community, would bring nothing but, but suffering and sin for a lifetime. But instead, it's clear here that what's driving Samson? Lust. Instant gratification. Here's a man who's powerfully strong, but he's not in control of himself. Here's a man who's driven by forces stronger than him, his lusts. He replies to his father in verse 3 then, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. This, of course, should echo with us. This is how the book of Judges ends, with this haunting refrain that things were so chaotic because... Everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. The writer wants us to see Samson is Israel. Samson, who's supposed to be set apart, is in love with forbidden things. Samson is supposed to be ruled by God's law, but he's unconcerned about anything other than what I think is right in my own eyes. Notice that he doesn't even try to justify what he wants. All he says he wants it is that he wants it because he wants it. This, of course, should, again, sound familiar to us. Isn't that the day and age in which we live? Woody 
what was it? Woody, 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 somebody. What's his name? What's the, um, you know what? I, I lost it. But his, uh, a movie star who, who, um, and director who married his adopted daughter. Um, so who is it? Woody Allen, there you go. Thank you, Kim. Um, when they asked him about it, what did he say? The heart wants what the heart wants. Love is love. Who are you to judge? That's the day in which we live in. Samson is the embodiment of 21st century America in many ways, just as he's the embodiment of Israel. And this is conduct which we too are all too often guilty of in many ways. But I want you to see, this is the secret of Samson's sin that's being revealed here. He's not ruled by external truth. He's not ruled by the law of God. He's ruled by internal passion. Very practically, this is why there are wisdom in many, there's wisdom in many counselors. This is why God has given us parents in those, the church around us, to keep us from following our own passions, from being blinded by our own lust, because we often lose that ability to judge and act wisely when these things take over. This is also why the Lord commands us not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? Transformed after the renewal of our minds. You see, the truth is, truth and righteousness and holiness and life are not found in here. It's humanism, secularism. Truth is not found in what we want in our own eyes. That's, that's the deception of Satan and, and our fallen nature. Truth is outside of us. Truth is objective. Truth is found in God and His revelation alone. David Wells once commented that man is supposed to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And now that is exactly reversed in our day. We doubt truth. Oh, but we're sure of what we know in here. That's the inherent lie that, that what will make us happy, that what will uh, lead us down the path of rightness and truth, that what is true lies in what we think and our ability to understand things rather than in God and His revelation and His mercy. Brethren, let this be a warning to us. Let this be a reminder to us to constantly devote ourselves to the Word of God, to devote ourselves to it every single day in reading, in meditation, to come here on Sundays and, and drink in from the Word that is read, that is, that is sung, that is, that is prayed, that is preached, that is seen in the Lord's table. Let us come and, and, and soak in this Word and seek actively to apply it to our lives. Otherwise, we will too walk down the same path. And we have every reason to hope that, the, that giving ourselves to the Word, will, will, um, that God will bless it. It's one of the promises of the New Covenant, isn't it? I will write my law upon the hearts of my people. I will put my Spirit in them and cause them to walk in my statutes. This is a secret of sin that's revealed even in God's deliverer. 
And thus let us take note of this and apply ourselves to the word of God. But secondly, we see after the secret of sin, we see the secret of Samson. The secret of Samson. Here we get in verses 5-9 through nine, the story of the honey and the lion. And this forms the tension of the narrative here. Samson and his father and mother go down to get his bride. But at some point while he's traveling, he becomes separated from his parents. Uh, maybe he stepped aside to use the restroom. Um, maybe he was walking on ahead of them because he was stronger and he was younger. Uh, but for whatever reason, he's kind of separated from them uh, for a moment. And a lion comes out roaring at him. Normally, of course, a, a lion is, uh, excuse me, a man is no match for a lion. But what do we read here? The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. There's this language, this emphatic language of it suddenly, passionately coming upon him. And he tears the lion to pieces with his bare hand. This, of course, is a little bit odd. I mean, normally the Spirit of the Lord comes upon the deliverers to defeat enemies. To empower him to tear a lion apart seems strange. It should have us scratching our heads a bit. But why is this? What's going on with this? Well, one theory here is you know, the Hebrew word for carcass that's used here is not the word that's normally used to refer to a dead body. This is a word that's actually more often used to refer to um, nations in the prophets, uh, nations who are destined for God's judgment. So, you know, couple that with the fact that in a moment we'll see honey comes from the carcass. Some argue that this is a picture of God's deliverer destroying the nations and partaking of the blessings of the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. I think there could be some legitimacy to that. It would be interesting to trace that out even further. But more importantly, more central here, I believe, is that the secret of sin and Samson are coming together again to reveal a, a, a greater picture about who he is. Immediately after we get this picture of Samson's great physical strength, tearing the lion apart, we then get this stark picture of his spiritual weakness as well. Because a few days later, he's traveling down the road again. Perhaps he steps aside to relive that glory or, or to see if the lion is still there. And what does he do? He sees a swarm of bees, you know, honey in the carcass of this lion. He took some, he ate some, and he gave to his parents to eat. But he didn't tell them where it came from. This may seem innocent enough, but... This is a blatant violation of his Nazareth vow. He was not supposed to touch any dead thing, any dead animal. But instead he eats something that came from that body. And then, then he even has the audacity to give some to his parents. Who That's why the narrator tells us they didn't know where it came from. Because they would have been horrified. They would have been rendered unclean as well. So again, the picture of Samson is emerging. He's distancing himself from his parents. He doesn't tell them where he got the honey from and from the way he was raised. He's distancing himself from the Lord and the commandments. He doesn't care about those things. He doesn't care about the law of God. He doesn't care about who the Lord said he would be. He doesn't care 
about his parents. He's ruled by his passions. He's a sensual man. He's ruled by a lust for instant gratification. He gives no thought to the commandments of God. Again, Samson is mirroring Israel as a whole. But you know, when we think about it, he's mirroring more than just Israel here. If you think closely about it. What sounds familiar with this refrain? He sees something that's forbidden. It was a delight to the eyes. He took it. He ate it. And then he gave it to somebody else. It's a clear allusion back to the garden and the fall of humanity in the first sin. Eve saw the fruit, forbidden, took it, ate it, and then gave it to Adam. And this is how the secret of Samson is revealed here for the purposes of the narrative. He's clearly not the answer for Israel. He's clearly no better than our first parents. He's clearly not that seed of the woman they've been longing for. And his actions are going to have great consequences for him and those around him. Thirdly, then, we come to the secret of his bride. The secret of his bride. The next scene is that Samson goes down to Timnah again to prepare a wedding feast. But actually, though, again, the... Hebrew is more insightful here. English does not do justice to the term. Literally, the word feast means drinking party. All right, This was a week-long binge-drinking affair. It's most likely a Philistine custom. Now, although we're not told specifically that Samson drank wine, the, the unmistakable implication is that he did. He's already been running around in vineyards. Are you saying... Perhaps that he was strong enough not to graze a little as he's walking through there. But, once again, drinking wine, Samson is blatantly violating his Nazareth vow. More than this, though, in the bigger picture of things, he's really just acting like a Philistine. He's traveling to Philistine country. Why would you do that? Mary's a Philistine wife. Gave no thought for the separation um, uh, in the law. He even parties with the Philistines after their customs. And he's acting like one of them. This is a, a stark picture of the canonization. Israel has become just like the nations around them as God had warned. But of course the narrative here, the tension arises as... The people see him and they bring 30 companions to be with him. There appears to be something in his appearance or his physique because because it says specifically here um, that when they saw him, they gave 30 men to be his companions. Kind of like uh, representing the town. You know, they are a little bit cautious of this guy. And that comes uh, clear later when um, they're talking to Samson's bride and, and they say, to her um, that have you brought us here to impoverish us impoverish impoverish us there we go uh, you know in the sense that that's what Israel did dispossess the nations like, they know something's going on here they're a little bit cautious here and so they give these dirty companions but but what does Samson do entirely in character as brash and 
egotistical and fearless. He wants to have a, a little bit of fun. So he puts before them a riddle. And this riddle comes with quite a large wager attached to it. If they solve it, of course, you know, they all get a new Easter outfit, as it were, right? A suit to wear to church on Sunday. Uh, but if, if uh, they don't solve it, then Samson gets 30 new outfits, you know, a king's wardrobe, as it were. This is, you know, quite, um, quite a bit on the line here of this wager. And what becomes clear in this is that Samson clearly was convinced that he was going to win. Can't expect him to come up with 30 changes of clothes all on his own from his own resources. And that should be the natural reading here. Why would he not think he's going to win? If you looked at this riddle, it's, it's impossible. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Of course, after three days, they couldn't solve it. They couldn't even start. They couldn't even begin to solve it. Why? Because it's not a solvable riddle. Unless they knew what had happened with the lion and the honey, they really had no chance at this. Samson is stacking the deck here. This is a lot like um, you know, um, Bilbo with Gollum, right? What have I got in my pocket? Like, that's not fair. It's ultimately manipulative. That's why, of course, the Philistines changed their strategy. They know that he's stacking the deck against them. They know that he's manipulating them. And so they go to Samson's wife to get the secret. They approach her in verse 15. They demand that she entice Samson to find out the riddle. And they threaten her. We're going to kill you and your father's house. We're going to burn it all down. We're going to kill your entire clan unless you cooperate with us here. Naturally, she's terrified. Sob story then begins. Oh, you don't love me. Oh, I thought I was special to you. And finally, after seven days, his wife nagging him, Samson spills the beans. And this, of course, foreshadows how he will do the same with Delilah regarding a far more important secret in a couple of chapters. But what I want you to notice here is what's revealed about her now. The secret of his bride comes to the surface. Now she's the one who's in control. Now she is the one who's manipulating him. Now she is the one who demonstrates, ironically, true loyalty, loyalty to her people. She spills the secrets, secret. In verse 18, the men of the city provide the meaning. And immediately, Samson knows what's happened. He knew the riddle was unsolvable otherwise. And then in verse 18, he hurls another riddle at them. Really, though, it's nothing more than an insult, an insult with sexual overtones. He calls her a heifer, a young cow, which is just as offensive in that day as it is in our day as well. And he's saying, you have wormed your way inside of her heart and used her as my property to get at me. It's incredibly cruel. It's a, it's a deeply offensive insult. And this shows us what kind of man that he is. 
kind of man would insult a woman that way? His bride, his wife. That's why in verse 20, Samson, uh, uh, I mean, her father gave her to another man uh, to, to marry another man, which will come into play in the next chapter because Samson returns later and is like, hey, where's my bride? <laughs> As if he could just say this and walk away with no consequences, right? No, I think she's going to be a little ticked off at him without a doubt. But here again, what do we see? Another example of a woman in this book who is abused by the Philistines and by Samson, revealing that they're really one and the same. They're not that much different. Here is another woman in this book who's treated as discarded property. That's what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The physically strong take control of the physically weaker. And yet again, the irony rises to the surface. surface. Samson appears to be in control, but it's the woman who's controlling him. Samson is outwardly devoted to the Lord in name, but ultimately he's a compromiser. Samson is supposed to be loyal to his own people, but really it's the woman who's more devoted to her people than Samson is to his. This is the secret of Samson's bride. Well, with all this, we can finally now draw things to a conclusion. What's going on with this narrative? Why is it given to us? What's the purpose that it serves in the grander scheme of things? Well, fourth and finally, we see Yahweh's secret. Yahweh's secret. The secret of Yahweh. How does Samson respond when the tables are turned on him and he's manipulated and he's dominated? Well, in verse 19, we read that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went to Ashkelon and killed 30 men, took their clothes, paid, paid his dues of his wager with those that he stole from those men he killed. As we'll see with Samson, he always acts out of self-interest. He always acts out of revenge. He never acts out of loyalty to the Lord or to His people. And once again, he responds in a sensual, passionate manner. He's kind of like the Hulk, right? He's entirely out of control, just destroying things, passion and anger, and he murders 30 men and steals from them so that he can pay the wager that he foolishly made. No thought is given to what's right in God's eyes. No thought is given to the law and the commandments of God. He does what he himself believes and thinks is right in his own eyes. But at the end of the day, things aren't exactly that simple. And this brings to the surface the riddle of Samson and the divine paradox of Yahweh raising him up. It's not that simple because the text tells us, it's crystal clear, that it's the Spirit of the Lord who stirred him up and empowered him to go and murder those 30 people. How can this be? How can the Spirit of the Lord be behind such an atrocity. 
Well, if you haven't noticed, this is not the first time in this chapter that we're told this. Remember in verse 1, which is connected with the end of chapter 13. The chapter division, of course, is not inspired. Samson went down to Timnah in the first place because the Spirit of the Lord was stirring him. Then in verse 4, Samson demands an unlawful bride. His parents are out of their mind. And the narrator, the divine author himself, breaks in and gives us a little parenthesis, a little explanation. Verse 4, his father and mother didn't know that this was from the Lord. What? Samson's desire for an unlawful bride. For he, that is Yahweh, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. It's not that simple. Because Samson does what he does, and he acts how he acts, because the Holy Spirit stirred him up to do so. How can that be? Wasn't it a sin to seek a foreign bride? Absolutely. Isn't it a sin to murder 30 people to pay a wager? Absolutely. And yet Samson does this because the Spirit led him and empowered him to do so. Brethren, this is the divine mystery of Yahweh and His sovereign decree. This is the wonder in the wonderful name, the too wonderful name of the Lord. God uses Samson, even uses his sinfulness as a tool in his hands to incite conflict between the two nations. Samson is used to stir up division. And that is how he will begin to save Israel. Remember, Israel was comfortable. We saw this last week. They weren't pining under the, 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 the burden of Philistine rule. They were fine. The Lord stirs him up, uses him to stir up conflict between the nations. So yes, this was still sin on Samson's part. Yes, he is still responsible for his sin. But what God meant for, excuse me, what Samson meant for evil, God meant it for good. Here, it's helpful to remember chapter 5 of our confession of faith, which speaks to this issue on the decree of God. There we read that God's sovereign decree extends to every action of man. Everything in life that happens, happens because God decreed it. Yet, the chapter goes on to say, this does not mean that violence is done to the will of the creature. Samson was not forced to do what he didn't want to do. Nor does it mean that God... Excuse me, that that man was not responsible for his sin. Samson was responsible for his sin. Nor does it mean that God is the author of sin. He is not the author of sin. We're told clearly in the book of James and other places. Perhaps maybe the best way that I can illustrate this is with the practice of administering chemo to someone who has cancer. Chemo is poison. Kills the body. That's why the hair falls out. 
Literally, you are poisoning someone when you administer chemo to them. And normally, if we'd say somebody's giving another person poison, we would say, that's, that's evil. That's wicked. But it becomes a very good thing when someone is poisoned in order to save their life. That's not a perfect illustration, but it scratches at the surface of what's going on here. God saves Israel not only despite her sin, but He saves Israel through her sin. God uses the sinfulness of Israel to bring about deliverance. So what then does this mean for you and me? How does this apply to our life? Well, this is a truth that ought to fill us with immense comfort and hope. Your suffering as a result of sin, your sin or other people's sin, it's not an accident. It's not meaningless. It's not outside of God's control. Even when you fall into sin, even when you break God's law in serious ways, no, your sin is not excused. No, it doesn't mean you won't pay the consequences for it. But you can take hope that even when you fall into grievous and horrible sin, that God will use even that for your good and for His glory, and that it's part of His divine purpose for you in some mysterious way. This truth is what gives us patience under trial. This truth is what fills us with hope and keeps us from seeking into the, the depths of despair when we sin. This truth is what, what, what aids our fear and anxiety when, when, when sin and unbelief are all around us. This truth is what enables us to, to give thanks and to rejoice in all circumstances, knowing that everything comes at the sovereign hand of a Lord, of a loving and faithful Lord. This truth is what ought to motivate us to, to get up and get out and serve the Lord and to, to serve our neighbor. To the excuse that you're too sinful to be used by God will not work here. The excuse that first you need to clean up your own life, like I, perfectionism, I've got to get you know everything worked out before I go out and serve the Lord, that will not work. You can go out and serve without fear, knowing that when you do stumble, and you will, and you will sin, and you will, that there's grace even there. And even your faults and your sins can be used by God for His glory and the good of His church. God delights in using sin, sinful and broken people to accomplish His purposes. And brethren, as well, this truth is also is what should lead us straight to the cross. That's where this divine paradox really comes together unlike anything else in all of creation. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, we read that God is the one who predestined and appointed Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and the Romans. It says there that God predestined that to take place so that Christ might be 
crucified so that we might be saved. They are still responsible for their actions. Jesus Christ said of Judas, it would have been better for you that you had never been born, and yet he was predestined to do what he did. How does that work? We don't know for sure. It is a divine mystery in many respects. It's a paradox. We ought to rather receive humbly both of those truths. God is responsible. Man is free in that sense. He's not forced upon to do things that he does not wish to do. And we are to receive those humbly. And we are to look to how in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is God who put forth Christ so that we might be saved. And that should fill us with hope. Well, this is the message of the gospel that is foreshadowed in Judges. This is how Judges preaches to us a God of undeserved mercy and grace. This is the God whose name is too wonderful for us to bear. This is the God who delights to use even the sins of His people to fulfill His purposes. God not only give us the strength today to receive these truths in faith, but may God use these things to strengthen our hope and our confidence as we put our hand to doing the work of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray.